politicians are still debating whether climate change is real or not, which is a travesty. And then there was the U.S. signing on and then withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. That's Bill Sisson, executive director of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development in North America. What did business leaders do in that sequence? They doubled down. They formed the we are still in movements. What business leaders are realizing is that they align with not just the words, but the actions that go along with them. Bill has a wealth of experience in driving corporate sustainability objectives in the private sector. Now, at the WBCSD, he represents North American pro-sustainability voices and values on the global stage. Today, Bill shares his vision for innovative solutions that address today's most pressing social and environmental challenges, and his belief that business has the ability to drive societal change. I'm Rasha Hasneen, and you're listening to Healthy Spaces with Train Technologies, a series of conversations that explores the world of indoor environmental quality from the inside out. In 2021, businesses are looking at environmental, social, and corporate governance, or ESG, in a whole new light. If we were having this conversation a few years ago, environmental governance would have been at the forefront of the conversation. However, due in part to the COVID-19 pandemic, Bill's observed a major shift in focus. The COVID pandemic literally overnight really shined the spotlight on the social responsibility of business. The realization that my employees are going home and they're gonna work from home and they're gonna have families that work from home. Oh my goodness, you know, what what do I do as a business, as a responsible business to ensure their livelihoods aren't going to somehow be disrupted? At the same time, having to make hard choices about shuttering business operations, assuring the safety of how my factories are running and the people in them. I mean, wow, I mean, this literally happened overnight. You know, that really put a lot of pressure on the executives of these companies to balance externally what they were doing, because, you know, I think it was really a traumatic situation for all involved. And the reality is over time last year, this notion of ESG really became a proxy for how companies in the long run are set up to handle these types of business issues and challenges. So as we've seen the shift to the social part of ESG, what do companies need to be considering to make sure they don't undermine the great progress that we've made on the environmental part of ESG? And do you think they can have both? Oh, I think it's you can't separate these two things. You have to have both. That's the easy answer. The harder answer is what are the priorities of the firm and how do I balance what I need to be paying attention to socially as much as what I need to be paying attention to environmentally. You know, we saw this in that that shift from physical to virtual. And I think I was was picking up a report the other day that the US is carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions were down 10% last year. So obviously a greater sort of transition caused, I think, largely in part by this shift to virtual, you know, the virtual workplace. And, you know, a couple of other things here relative to this balance and this this need. I mean, 
we've got this this phrase out here, stakeholder capitalism, which more and more stakeholders of business are expecting more from business. And it's not just about uh, maximizing shareholder value. That terminology is basically evaporated and it's really about shifting to stakeholder capitalism. Well, one of the key stakeholders in any business outside of your customers are your employees. And the social responsibility you have with your employees, they're expecting more. And not just the employees you have, but the employees you will have. And so this is a really interesting relationship to that balance. What are new employees, new hires, new bright, brilliant minds looking for in companies? And what are their proxies going to be? If you're you know, looking at two companies of equal sort of potential, the company that wins out in that bright, new, brilliant mind is going to be the one that has a more responsible position in terms of ESG. When you get into the nuances of, of environment, environmental and social aspects, you know, employee health and safety are paramount front and center issues these days. And the need for understanding when we do go back to work, what is it that I as a business owner need to make sure I've done to the workspace to make it more socially acceptance in terms of the social aspects of my responsibility of employee health and safety. It's going to be ventilation, filtration, and a certain degree of, of paying attention to germicidal treatments, whether it's massive cleaning or other things, or germicidal air filters. These things have been around for a long time. How you design them in and how you retrofit them in and how you associate the investments need, you know, all of that's going to really start to play itself out. And I'll make one last point. We've looked at some recent studies like from scientific reports suggesting that good practice ventilation could be as effective in mitigating influenza outbreaks as vaccinating approximately half the population. That's amazing. It's amazing, but good ventilation practices can't counter the effects of the energy efficiency and environment footprints that you're trying to manage. So these things start to take on a very necessary design aspect. As people return to their workplaces, the expectations placed on organizations will certainly be higher. Let's not underestimate the importance of the G in ESG, governance, because it's this management of the process coupled with deliberate transparency that's becoming increasingly more important for employees, both current and future. Transparency has been around for quite a while, but I think I'll start with quite simply the immortal words of Peter Drucker, one of the most amazing management thinkers of our time. If you can't measure it, you can't improve it. I mean, that's just a fundamental premise. So it's really both a way for companies to understand their performance, their how well they're doing relative to the transparency factors, and increasingly how other stakeholders are using that information to assess how they think the company's doing. So the latter is more of a more recent thing. I'll go, I'll go back to my history in the early 90s. There was a lot of regulatory pressure on companies and a lot of things were happening from the the regulatory environment that were driving companies to start to think about, maybe we ought to be taking this stuff more seriously. It's costing us money not to. That was the early 90s. Now, I would say the investors have gotten involved. 
And the reason the investors have gotten involved is they're really seeing these transparency metrics as a means to assess how well they think these companies are managed and prepared for risk and resiliencies, frankly, in, in impacts of climate change, of social unrest, of all these things that are now playing out in some sense before our eyes. And just an in, a really interesting statistic to provide to you in the context of investors, sustainable investment funds today are at 30 trillion US dollars. That's up nearly 70% from five years ago and up tenfold in the last 15 years. It's an amazing ramp up of how these funds have been created and what are they using to build those funds? What information are they using? That's actually the $64 million question. You know, I'm a, I'm a CEO and I'm going, well, wait a second, how are they assessing me and my performance? Am I putting the right information out there? If you're not a CEO today paying attention to that, you're going to find yourself in real trouble in a few years' time. So it really is transparency and governance are huge and going to be increasingly more important if you aren't understanding how you fit into the landscape of, of those issues. So maybe you can give us a little bit of perspective, given your vantage point with businesses. What are you hearing from your contacts in the political and business arena? What are political and business leaders thinking? Well, my role, you know, at WBCSD and in, in North America, it's I really, in some ways, have to pay most attention to business leaders because they're the ones we work closest with. You know, it's really been interesting in the last five years. We know that the politicians are still debating whether climate change is real or not, which is a travesty. I mean, it's crazy. And then there was the U.S. signing on and then withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. What did business leaders do in, in that sort of sequence? They doubled down. They formed the We Are Still In movements, which was signed by thousands of business and sub-government states and city-level leadership to say, this is serious, this is serious enough that's going to impact our business, and we're still in, and we're going to drive our agenda forward. In the same time, on the social front, in 2019, we had nearly 200 U.S. CEOs sign up for the business roundtable's purpose of a corporation, which was really what launched this question about stakeholder capitalism, the broader collective of moving away from maximizing shareholder value towards being more attentive to the social aspects of a company. Both of these things are, are, are real. They're really being debated and looked at by business leaders today. And what we've seen in the last year, we've actually seen these companies make incredibly ambitious and bold commitments to the environmental and social agendas. We're seeing commitments to essentially eliminating all greenhouse gas emissions. What business leaders are realizing is that they have to align with not just the words, but the actions that go along with them. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in the coming year. Politically, outside of, of the U.S., which I think is going to radically change here shortly, we've seen China make some bold commitments. Europe is way ahead of the game in the European countries. Asia, Australia, Canada, 
you know, their political systems are realigning around setting these these ambitious targets as countries. And I think our U.S. pause is really about to give way. I believe the the new incoming administration really understands the economic potential of being a leader in these issues. And it's interesting to note every member of the cabinet has some connection to either the environmental or social emergencies that need to be handled. It's really encouraging to see nations all over the world getting behind bold climate commitments through addressing their own greenhouse gases and establishing new renewable sources. Decarbonization is a term that comes up a lot as organizations seek out strategies to improve their environmental performance, while also addressing the evolving social contract with occupants. So I asked Bill to share his insights on the need for a system-wide approach and how that can balance both sustainable and healthy environments. Energy efficiency and decarbonization go hand in hand. And so one choice that you make may have consequences that you didn't anticipate. But one one simple way of thinking is you've got a building that's made up largely of, of a lot of what we call passive systems like insulation or windows or the construction materials you that are used to build your home or your building. And then the active systems that go along with those. So you may have a heating system, you may have an air conditioning system or a ventilation system, and you have lighting and all these these other active systems. And quite simply, you know, you take one passive system like insulation, which ultimately lowers the heating need that you might need for a building. So it obviously lowers the emissions impact of a building if you add more insulation. And so the key is to be able to model these things in a a fairly robust way to understand how all those systems interact with each other and then ultimately put forward a design that's optimized. And so you know, just a simple example of something that that I didn't think of back when we were looking at this a few years ago. Some may remember we used to have things called incandescent light bulbs. Incandescent light bulbs were been around since Thomas Edison. When I think they're still you can still buy them in the hardware store. They're ten percent at best, ten percent efficient to convert electrons into light. So where does the other 90% go? Heat. Heat, <laughs> right? And so for 100 years, we've been heating our homes and our businesses with light bulbs. Now, we did a study and looked at what does that mean in terms of carbon impact? You know, switching to LEDs, that's really good. That and LEDs are 90% efficient at converting electrons to light. Only 10% of the heat's going into the building, right? Well, guess what? We did a study in Europe and found that Europe largely heats with gas and fossil fuels. Emissions actually went up. Right, because they had to heat more. (laughs) Because they had to use more fossil fuel in these buildings to offset what was the heat they were getting from the incandescent light bulb. But I think it's powerful to think about when you understand those are the kind of system interplays that when you think of something as a system-wide approach, you have to account for these things. You have to account for the energy and emissions impact of systems and the interplay that they'll have. Certain sectors may find it challenging to address decarbonization, 
So with that in mind, the WBCSD has established a framework to help industries tackle the issue head on. Last year, just to, to tie a bow around this, WBCSD released something called the Building System Carbon Framework, which was a missing tool in the industry for understanding how all the different systems interact, but also the footprint of those systems from both an embodied carbon point of view and an operational carbon point of view. And given a framework to the industry around how do I account for all of these things, which we believe will ultimately serve the sector towards understanding how to move from what is mostly a financial transaction today. It's a very tight cost controlled industry, but now to consider how to move that to a carbon transaction so that I can make the appropriate financial choice, understanding the carbon transaction that will also be associated with it. I think it's going to be very powerful. And I think so far we've picked up a lot of positive reaction from the industry. When we consider decarbonization on an organizational level, as Bill rightly explains, we have to consider circularity within the built environment. So if you think of carbon as a fixed investment that you make, so at the beginning of a building's life cycle, I invest in something that has a certain amount of carbon associated with it. The lowest impact we could have is if you keep that carbon always. You've already made the investment and it's there for forever. <laughs> that, would, that would mean I never have to make that carbon investment again. And if you take that into the context of a part of your building, the best thing I could do is reuse as much of that carbon as I can in the next embodiment of, of the building, whether it's a refurbishment or a brand new building. But unfortunately, that doesn't happen today. Most of what happens today and the business models that we have and the business transactions that we have in the industry are really built around saying goodbye to the old building, watching it get put into a landfill somewhere, and then making all those new carbon investments and transactions. So circularity in the built environment really looks at how do I design in carbon and how I can reuse that carbon I've designed in in the future. That's good if you're an architect, but now if you're a, a company, you know, like Train, what does that mean for me? You know, I've got a certain amount of investment in a product that I make. What's my responsibility in circularity? And so now you start to think about all elements of the value chain having some role or responsibility in the circularity of the value chain. What can I use? What can I reuse? What do I take back? What do I just to avoid as much of that ending up in the landfill, which today is the standard practice. And you have to balance that too with, you know, the carbon investment I made in systems 10 years ago may lead to a certain carbon footprint, operating carbon footprint versus embodied. And today I may want to make a different investment to reduce my operating carbon footprint with something that has an additional carbon investment, but has a return on that carbon investment that's much higher. Now, what do I do with the thing I just took out, right? And how do I go back to you know, the supplier and say, can this be reused to produce something that has a lower operating carbon footprint? Those trade-offs need to be a little bit more, I think, conscious. They for sure need to be costed in. And I think that's really where the, some of the work we're doing right now is what, is what is the defined business case across 
the supply chain for doing this? And how do business models perhaps need to be rethought? You know, you're, in your world, copper is extremely important to your, your product. Wouldn't it be great if I could get a lot of that copper back and reuse it without having to make a substantial amount of more carbon investment yes. that I'm making in new copper today, right? And that's a technology question as much as it is a business question. Those are the kind of value trade-offs that I think we need to see more of. It's really identifying those key areas that you want to look at. So for example, we've made those types of shifts as it relates to the use of aluminum and steel, right? And we still have copper. So it's always, you can always get better. How do we design this in so that I can use recycled copper versus virgin copper, and I'm not having to go back around rare earth materials every time I have a new product. So I absolutely agree. That's right. There's so much we should be doing and could be doing, but it isn't the way we've built up our business models to date. Those are the parts that we need to really rethink around these issues. In parallel to organizations reconsidering the buildings that they occupied, we're also seeing a lot of conversation around our wider city environments. Sustainable smart cities have been a buzzword for a while now. However, the new normal of remote work over the past year means that the concept of a circular built environment is experiencing a lot more traction. You know, back when we were talking about the impact of COVID, this issue of people having to work from home, we used to call it work-life balance. And quickly that morphed into work-life migration. It all just became integrated. And, and so I think there will always be a need for environments that facilitate the business, whether that's offices, engineering labs. There's only so much we can do in this virtual space. But the key is, is as cities start to embrace their place in the climate action agenda. They're going to count on the private sectors who are leasing, owning, and operating their these facilities within the boundaries of the, the city to take more accountability to the impact they're having. And so I think this is going to be an interesting opportunity for us to, you know, I don't want to use the, the phrase too flippantly, but to really think what does build back better mean? in the context of, you know, what is the right way for us to treat this experimental result where some businesses have actually seen a productivity increase by people working from remotely and from their homes. I just think it's going to change the way we think about urban planning, urban design, urban density, and the associated systems that support that, whether it's ventilation, filtration, and, and germicidal systems that we talked about earlier, and the energy balance that goes along and the emissions balance that'll go along. And I think cities are going to be much more involved in those conversations than they are today. The other one I wanted, wanted to mention was back to our circularity question, right? You know, as a, a person that, that lives in the city, what's my responsibility in terms of minimizing waste? Statistically speaking, cities are accumulating about five pounds of waste per person per day as a result of just being a human. Now, unfortunately, way more than half of that ends up in, in a landfill. 
So what do businesses need to start thinking about that encourages not just recycling, but a greater amount of reuse, a greater amount of take back, a greater amount of value back, you know, the old redemption value kind of thing to really think about how to make consumers think more circular. And the constituents of cities, obviously, are the consumers. So I think there's more to come on that because we can't keep filling up landfills. It's cheaper today to dump into a landfill than it is to recycle many products. So we need to fix that. And it's cheaper to do than to redistribute and reduce the waste altogether. I mean, when just looking at food waste personal story, right? I started composting at home, both kitchen and yard waste. And when we started having to deal with kitchen waste ourselves, our eating habits changed. Right. Because my little kitchen waste bin is small. And I'm like, there's nothing going in the garbage can or the garbage disposal. It's all going in here. And now all of a sudden, our habits have changed. We waste less, right? And then you just look at how much food is wasted in a city and how much can be redistributed because of what are a lot of times archaic regulations with restaurants, for example. It it really is a great point you're making that that let's not forget city regulations that need to completely be rethought that will enable some of the things you're talking about. But also it's really how do we make one person's trash another person's treasure and really allow that mechanism to be economically enabled and not have these regulations that prevent that from happening. So I think that there's a fair amount of activity we're going to see coming out of city governments. You know, it happens at the cities, let's just be real. And cities are are notoriously competitive. They want to attract business, they want to attract people, they want to attract vibrant economies. And if the future is going to be, I'm going to attract a greater amount of economic value if I do some of these things, which I think will be the case, we'll get through this. Yeah, completely agree. So, you know, when we start to look at smart and sustainable um, cities and and really the circular built environment, who's doing this really well? Where are some good examples that maybe our listeners can go look at and learn from? I think you'll find a lot of really cool things happening in in European cities, but I don't want to, you know, Stockholm, look at what Stockholm's doing. I'll just put that out in front. But I think there's some really good examples. There's some great regulations in New York. California's got some fantastic zero energy objectives. And I think there's five or six states that are doing that really well. I also, you know, want to give a shout out to some of the things we've talked about today is to some of the businesses that are. I was going to say, what businesses are doing really well? Well, I, I have a personal kind of condition that I, I practice where I don't, I try not to name companies, but what I would ask your listeners to do is go look at every member of the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. We have just launched five new member conditions that we're asking every member to have in place, you know, practices in place by the beginning of 2023. The first one I mentioned earlier is around setting ambitions towards net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050 and putting action plans and roadmaps in place to achieve them. The second is around adhering to the principles of no nature loss by 2050. Still some work to do around what that means and how do you measure and and metricize that. Uh, The third one is around adherence to and following the practice of the UN Guide to Human Rights. 
The fourth is around setting a course for addressing, truly addressing inequality in the workplace and putting the programs and practices in place to get those issues resolved. We have, we have to deal with that. And then the fifth criteria, it goes back to something we talked about earlier, which is around really the materiality of the information that companies are, are going to be putting out around these factors. It's not good enough to just put a report out there that covers the white space of everything we do. We need to really be focused on making sure we're being we're providing information that allows those that want to evaluate the companies to make a clear and, and precise and robust evaluation of those companies. I think, you know, train, I said I wouldn't name a company, but I'll name train. The gigaton challenge, which is really looking at how do you impact the customer footprint, the whole leading by example, which is firmly looking at are the business models you're practicing today really going to take you forward into the future? And then your opportunity for all, which is really getting at the social aspects of running your business and the impact that making bad choices along those dimensions are going to have to not just your company, but perhaps leading the way will help other companies understand what it needs to do. Well, thank you. We, we appreciate the shout out. Just to wrap things up here, you know, new administration through a, a very bump, bumpy, probably the bumpiest transition in history. You wake up tomorrow morning and you're in charge. What are the first two decisions or actions that you would make? I would say two things. One is to really drive renewable electrification and the drive for systems efficiency for everything game over if we can obtain both of those things. And then really convincing every American citizen that net zero greenhouse gas emissions society is going to be economically advantaged. It's going to provide jobs for everyone. It's going to drive this economy into the 22nd century. And if we don't do it now, starting now, we're going to get behind from all the economies that are already ahead of us. Those are my wake-up calls tomorrow morning. Bill's vision for a bold, economically advantaged future driven by renewable energy and net-zero greenhouse gas emissions is something we can all truly get behind. By bringing together business leaders and a commitment to addressing those core societal and environmental challenges, Bill and the WBCSD are part of a driving force for global change. And that means better outcomes for businesses and benefits for the health and well-being of society and the planet. You've been listening to Healthy Spaces with Train Technologies. I'm Rasha Hassanin. For more information on our conversation with Bill Sisson, see the show notes in your podcast app. Don't forget to hit subscribe to hear new episodes. And join us next time when we'll be speaking to former U.S. Congressman Russ Carnahan about his pioneering work at the intersection of infrastructure and policy and the need to make high-performance buildings a fundamental part of our society and economic growth engine. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. Thank you.